Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. To the continuation of a series that we've been in for some weeks now and have about three more weeks left of, a series called Who. Over to my right, you can see a silhouette that is slowly filling in with a number of different types of people. That's meant to illustrate really the bulk of this series, that God has wired all of us differently. All of us work together to build one singular body of Christ. And in order for that to happen, we need to be aware of our relationships with each other, aware of our Lord, but most often, or most Most importantly, we need to be self-aware. We need to understand who we are, how God has uniquely wired each of us. We also need to know, because all of us are fallen in sin, the way in which that sin nature is most likely to work itself out. There may be weaknesses that you have because God hasn't wired you the way he's wired somebody like me. But then there are weaknesses I have because I'm not wired like you. And so you're going to be prone to sin. I'm not prone to. I'm going to be prone to sin. You're not prone to. And so we need not only an awareness of the Lord, we need an awareness of ourselves. And so I'm excited to continue this with you today. Uh, If you are a part of the group that signed up to actually go through the instrument that we're using as a basis just to sort of introduce this subject, uh, it's meeting today, uh, just after the 11 o'clock service up in the great room. Uh, so I hope to see you there, uh, and we'll go over that as well. Uh, but here in the sanctuary, as we're worshiping God together, the Word of the Lord drives what we say here. And so we want to look at a number of different biographies and stories of people in the Scriptures today uh, around this next type of individual. And when I think about the kind of individual that we're going to be talking about today, uh, I'm reminded of something that I've been really honored to participate in in the past. One of the greatest honors I've had is to be a part of something called the Patriot Guard. I'm not sure if that's something you're aware of or have heard of, but a number of years ago, there was a cult group. They actually still exist out in Kansas called the Westboro Baptist Church. You may have seen them with those really ugly, nasty signs, uh, just protesting anything and anybody that they didn't particularly like, and not just seeking to tell the truth, but really just trying their, their, their best to be jerks about the whole thing. Uh, and at some point in their history, they ratcheted it up a notch and they, they, they weren't just spewing out hatred toward our LGBT neighbors and other individuals that they didn't particularly like, but they actually started showing up at the funerals of servicemen and women and protesting so loudly that these people couldn't even bury their dead. And when I saw this, I just became enraged. I was watching this on television. I can remember watching it from my home, and I remember just getting really, really angry because whether or not I agree with your political position, whether we voted for the same person, whether or not this church might agree with your sexual choices, whatever my posture toward a war for that matter, these are families of people who have faced things on a battlefield that are unimaginable to, to most of us. And I just felt like they ought to be able to bury their dead and mourn without a bunch of jack wagons around them, just being jerks. And so I became aware of this organization of bikers, guys that had bikes, and they didn't even have to be Harleys. Like they could be anything. Sometimes there's a little bit of a snobbishness in Harley riders. I'm just calling that out right now. 
Okay? Didn't mean it. All you needed was a desire to protect these families. And at the invitation, and only at the invitation of these families, we would sit in the parking lot at the church or the funeral home. We would wait on them to get out. And then surrounded by all kinds of motorcycles, we would escort them to the graveside. And it was there that we would form a perimeter. And it would look a little something like this. If you were standing with the family, what you saw was something more akin to that picture at the top. You saw our backs because we weren't there so much to mourn with you as we were to guard your right to mourn undisturbed from other people. If you were one of the protesters, what you tended to see was what's at the bottom of the picture. You notice those dudes don't look like people to be trifled with. There was a purpose behind that. We wanted to protect the innocent. We wanted to protect people and allow them their moment to bury their loved ones. And that meant standing against anybody that might disturb that peace, no matter what it took. Interestingly enough, they tended to back down. All we kind of had to do was demonstrate a presence, and they went away. Now, when I think about those experiences that I had being a part of that group, it reminds me of what that group embodies. It embodies the kind of person that we're talking about today. There are people in the world of whom, when you meet them, you tend to feel one of two emotions very quickly. If you feel like you're on their good side and they like you, you feel protected by them. If, they're not, if you're not on their good side and you kind of get the impression that they don't like you, you feel threatened by them. And this is the kind of individual we're talking about today. They just sort of exude that, that level of clarity. This is the person that we'll call the commander. They're strong and powerful people, or at least they present that way. They, they tend to exude this sense of strength that kind of oozes out of them and makes them incredibly intense people. You ever met an intense person? Forceful, strong, direct, authoritative. Uh, they tend to be some of the more hardworking people as well. There's not a greater work ethic in any organization, including a church, than someone who is like this. They're willing to work. They're willing to slave. They're willing to do whatever is necessary. They're like diesel engines, really. And most notably, they tend to control their environment. That's why this kind of individual tends to rise to the position of a CEO in a major corporation. They tend to become very powerful and influential political leaders. They tend to be visionaries and, and people that can put structure together and march an army of people forward to accomplish a mission. Uh, and on that basis, they also tend to be quite literally military commanders uh, that sort of rise through the ranks and are able to command men and women toward the accomplishment of a goal. And it's because their innate ability to lead makes them the best candidates for fighting an enemy. And so what I want us to do this morning is look at a few of these people as they're described by the Word of God. Let's look at some of the strengths and weaknesses and see what we can learn. If you are this kind of individual, if you're married to this kind of individual, this should be useful to you. And we're going to start with the biography of a military commander. We find her story in Judges chapter 4. Her name is Deborah. Read with me, beginning in Judges chapter 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, and meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. 
This is a question that she's presenting to her general who is under her command, and she's asking it because she's wondering what the holdup is. She's already told him once, under the authority of God himself, this is what God has called us to do. This is how many men you are to take. This is the strategy that you're supposed to execute. These are the things to do. And this is the victory that's been assured to you. And it hasn't happened yet. And so this is an account of the only woman to ever judge over Israel. Her story is told twice, actually. Once here in Judges chapter 4, and then again in the Song of Deborah in Judges 5. This is a passage that looks back on her war victories, and it reads as follows. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan, of Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven and the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Sounds like a commanding type, doesn't it? Let's go. Grabbing all of the people together and saying, there's the goal. Charge the hill. You're with us or you're against us. That's the personality that we see. And so it's no surprise to us that after she's already asked Barak once to mobilize his army and move against the Canaanites, she's a little bit perturbed that she's got to ask twice. That's a commander type. If you work for an individual like this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If they have to ask you more than once and they have to do this repeatedly, you're not going to work for them very long. You know somebody like that? Some of you are like, I think I might be that person. Maybe. Maybe. And then you got to watch yourself when you go home because you got to remember your wife and your children are not your employees. That's always something to, to remember, something very helpful to your marriage and family that you need to remember. But we see that here. And it provides us with one of the earliest examples in the period of Judges how commanding leadership can change things in a profound way. She says to Barak, her general, gather an army of 10,000. And even though he's gathered the army, he's reluctant to go forward. And so she says, what's the problem? I've already told you what to do. Did I stutter? I've made it abundantly clear. Barak is unsure of himself. And so at the conclusion of this conversation, she says, okay, fine. I will go with you if that makes you feel better. But because you've been so cowardly, the honor of killing Sisera will not go to you. It will go to a woman in case you don't know in the ancient world, wasn't the nicest thing you could say to a guy. And that's exactly what happens. This is textbook behavior for someone of this type. And if you've ever met somebody like this, there's a couple of different things that they really despise. The first is ambiguity. Any lack of clarity. They don't like that. And so when you give a clear order to someone and they hesitate or they object, or that's, that's not something a commander deals with easily. Sometimes you have to, but it's not something that you naturally just, okay, let's, let's work this out. And you see this in the life of Deborah and her reaction to Barak. The other thing that these people don't like is weakness. This is why she's so perturbed. Why are you hesitating? I told you to go. The enemy's there. They're easily defeatable. I told you that. Why are you hesitating? To her, it's a sign of weakness. And these kinds of individuals despise weakness. And the advantage of working with or for people like this 
is you know you're going to go places and you know stuff is going to get done. But here's the other side of that. They're going to push you very quickly to get it done. And they're going to push you in ways that make you uncomfortable. That's Deborah. She very quickly leads this Israelite army to bring the Canaanites to retreat. And she does that, by the way, in spite of the fact that Canaan had far superior weaponry and training. With the Israelites, many of these people don't even have shields. They have very short swords. They don't have the iron chariots that their Canaanite enemies have. And even in, the, in spite of all of that, Deborah rounds up the troops, and together with Barak, they lead these people to overwhelming victory. And it's a victory, by the way, that Sisera doesn't realize was even possible. He thinks he's going to go into battle. Some of you are like me and you're Civil War historians, and you remember the Battle of Manassas when it was thought that the Union Army was just going to overwhelm the Confederate Army, and that's not what happened at all. The, the, the Confederate Army overwhelmed the Union Army on that battlefield. That's what happens here. It's this huge surprise to the superiorly trained with superior weaponry army of people. And they don't, they didn't realize this. And so Sisera, as a result, flees for refuge. It's the exact opposite of what he thought was going to happen. Commander types like Deborah call people to task and they get things done. And in this instance, Deborah's leadership leads to a fulfilled prophecy because she had told Barak at the outset of this battle, the honor of killing Sisera will go not to you, but to a woman. And only a very short verses, a few, few short verses later, we discover who that woman is. Her name is Jael. How many of you have heard of Jael in the Bible? A few of you? Some of you are going to like her. You haven't heard about her. Others of you are going to be a little grossed out at what I'm going to read in a minute. Others of you might be a little bit repulsed. Others of you are going to be, wow, I had no idea that story was in the Bible. Sisera flees, and he finds what he thinks is refuge in a tent belonging to a man named Heber, a Kenite. The Kenites at this point are allied with the Canaanites, and so he's thinking to himself, there's the ally. Right? It would be like an American soldier on a foreign battlefield, and he can't find an American flag anywhere, but lo and behold, there's a British one. And he knows those are my friends, or at least he thinks he does. And so he goes into this tent, and Heber is not there, but his wife, Jael, is there. And the following begins to take place. We read these words in Judges chapter 4. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is there anyone here, say no. I'm hiding out, and I need you to tell everybody I'm not here. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And the conclusion, apparently, in this text was written by Captain Obvious. So he died. That tends to happen when you drill a tent peg into somebody's temple. He's laying on the ground thinking he's safe. Next thing you know, he's quite literally nailed to the ground and dead. So he comes into this environment thinking to himself, my allies are here. It never crossed his mind that Heber's wife might have had a different opinion of this situation than Heber did. It never crossed his mind that for 20 years, this woman, Jael, had witnessed the harsh oppression 
of the Canaanite people against the Israelites. And she had compassion on the Israelites. And so when this happens, she comes quickly to the conclusion, this guy needs to go. You know anybody like that? Like, I know what the problem is. That person needs to go. That's that sort of commanding attitude. That's a commanding attitude. One of the great strengths of a commander we see here in JL too. Not only the willingness to fight, not only the willingness to face down your enemy and overwhelmingly defeat them, but to do it on behalf of somebody else. See, even though a commander type may despise weakness, when they see it in someone else, they want to fix it. These are people who love to stick up for the little guy. And this is why it should not surprise us that some of the same people in the world and in the church that run major companies and command armies also adopt orphans and serve food in war-torn countries and have a keen, sharp sense of justice. And when they think the scales are unbalanced, they will assume the right and the responsibility to put their own thumb on that scale to the advantage of the helpless and the weak. That's what you see happening here in graphic detail. And so when we think about this type of individual within the church, we're talking about people who can be great leaders because of their strength of personality. When the church needs black and white clarity, these people bring it. More than any other personality type, the commander is the one who reminds God's people that this is not peacetime, this is wartime. And he can call them to spiritual war like nobody else and in a way that makes the enemy shudder. Now, here's the problem with this type of individual. If you're not careful, you will see everything as a battle. You will see every person as an enemy. And you will take out innocent people in the process. I had a dear pastor friend of mine who got into a real mess in the church that he was pastoring. We'll call him Frank. And he called me one night and he said, Joel, I need some advice. I'm going through this really hard time. I, it's typical that no matter the size of the church, it's just been my experience. There can be 50 people in that church on Sunday. There could be 500 people in that church on Sunday. There could be 5,000 people in that church on Sunday. The troublemakers in a church never usually make up more than about half a dozen people. And he had a group, about a half a dozen of them. And they were absolutely, I mean, he was like, my mental health is in danger here. These people torment me. They're tormenting, they're confronting my kids. They're being just ugly. It's not even that they disagree. They're actually trying to run me out of here and they're harming the body of Christ. And I don't know what to do. I had an open Sunday the next week. I went, I sat down kind of where some of you are right now and I listened to him preach. We have a phrase in the ministry world, we call it chainsaw preaching. Like you crank up a chainsaw and then you just start flailing it. Like that's what was happening. He was like, ah, like the whole time. I took him to lunch. I said, Frank, dude, you can't do that. And he's like, there, but Joel, there's, there's wolves. There's wolves in my church. I got to get them out. I'm like, granted, I understand. Let's tease that analogy out a little bit, though, okay? If you really have a bona fide wolf in sheep's clothing in your congregation, and I believe you do, okay, the thing for you to do is to take a rifle with an accurate scope 
and draw that wolf out from the rest of the pack and shoot him. Okay? But what you're doing, my brother, is loading a 12-gauge shotgun and then putting on a blindfold and just firing. And you're hitting sheep. You're sinning in doing that. You can't do that. He never quite could come to that understanding. I think at that moment, I was probably dealing with one of these kinds of individuals who recognized that it was wartime, but then looked and saw everybody as the enemy. That's because when this kind of individual walks in the flesh, there's this perpetual need to be against. Everything is a battle. If this is you, listen to your pastor, who has sometimes some of these same struggles. Not everybody who has a different opinion as you is your enemy. Not everybody that objects to something you're doing is trying to undermine your authority. Just because somebody offers a contrary opinion doesn't make them a saboteur. And this is what makes fleshly commander types dangerous people. It's not just that they're strong and powerful, but they're, if you're strong and powerful and unaware, you can really, really do some damage to your family, to the organization you work for, to the body of Christ. There's one profound example of that in Scripture. A man by the name of Joab. Joab, if you don't know, was commander in, to King David. What we know of his biography makes it obvious that he was this kind of individual, but that disposition didn't make him as useful to the kingdom as it did to make him reckless and dangerous to David's kingdom. The first mention, in fact, of him in Scripture is in the middle of David's war with Abner. Joab's brother, Ashael, was killed in that battle. So you have this man, Abner, who has killed your brother, and you're one of these types of people. What do you think Joab's disposition was toward Abner? He wasn't very good. And so when Abner switches sides and repents and pledges his loyalty to David, Joab is furious. I'm not going to fight shoulder to shoulder with somebody who killed my brother, with somebody that was my enemy. And so we read the following in 2 Samuel chapter 3. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. So there's this secret meeting. Come on, let's, let's, uh, it's almost under cover of night. Let's, let's come together and see if we can make up, see if we can find some resolution, if not outright reconciliation. But that was never his intent to begin with. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Eshael, his brother. There you go. That's what you call trigger happy. That is not a healthy disposition for someone like this. Later on, we see that the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Absalom was David's son. David loved Absalom. If, if any of you have got a child that's just gone buck wild and they're breaking your heart, this is a story you can relate to in Scripture because that's what's happening. Absalom isn't just rebelling. Absalom is revolting. He's leading an army against his own father. And so you've got this compassionate father who understands that this man has to be stopped, but at the same time thinks, this is my beloved son. 
go out and do what is necessary to stop his army, but do not kill him. Now, can you imagine his commanders hearing that? And then when they leave the palace, they look at one another and go, because that's exactly what happens. And we see that in the next passage. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. So he gets captured. You may not know this if you're not familiar with Absalom. He had long, flowing, Fabio-like hair. And apparently it was flowing in the wind, and it got caught in the branches of this tree. Quite comical, if you ask me. I'd like to see somebody make a movie out of this. Honestly, I'd pay good money to see that. And so he's hanging from the tree branch by his hair. Under orders, these men are, do not hurt my son. Do not hurt my son. A man finds him there and reports to Joab. And Joab says, oh, why didn't you just kill him? Joab's underling says, because he's the king's son. The king specifically requested that we not kill his son. And you can almost see... As you read the rest of this text, Joab just rolls his eyes as he takes a javelin and just thrusts it right into the chest of Absalom. This is what we call trigger happy. This is Joab. Einstein used to say, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Apparently to Joab, every problem, it appears, can be solved by killing somebody. This is the feeling of always needing to be against this kind of individual. If you're one of these kind of people walking in the flesh, this is your disposition, and it must change. You must repent of this. Coworkers with a different approach to something are always in competition with you. Your own children, when they share their feelings, are arguing with you and showing disrespect to you. This tends to be the the way that God has wired me personally. And I can tell you what, my, my wife has been wonderful for both me and for our children by occasionally pulling me aside and saying, you were too harsh. You need to go back and tell them you're sorry for the way you came down on them. You were right and they were wrong, but the way you demonstrated your rightness and their wrongness, you, you didn't even notice you crushed your son. Go make things right with him. Some of you may have a spouse like that and you're just not listening to them. Let me tell you something. As somebody with that kind of experience that, that has had to repent, listen to your spouse. Listen to those people around you. If you sense that the kind of person I'm describing is you, that this is how God has wired you, listen to the voice of the Spirit of God as it comes through the brothers and sisters that are around you so that you don't unintentionally demolish people. People and processes that seem to just be in your way and you become the bulldozer. And in those moments, the same people that really should see you as a fortress see you as a threat. That's the besetting sin. Through this whole series, we've been looking at besetting sins. Everybody's got something, right? For the, for the helper, it's pride. For the organizer, it's deceit. For the artist, it's jealousy, envy. For the commander, it's shamelessness. 
Nothing I do is wrong. I got a very clear sense of where I'm going or what I'm doing. I'm just going to cut through it all. And, and it could be something really innocuous. How do you express shamelessness? Sometimes it might just be through breaking in line at the amusement park. You all have seen people do that, haven't you? But it might be something more serious. If you're the kind of person that dominates every conversation you're in, if you're the kind of person that lords it over the people in your home rather than godly and biblically leading them in your home, if you use your power in ways that betray the truth that you really think the end justifies the means, whatever it is that you're going to do, let me tell you something, there's hope for you. And the most powerful stories in Scripture demonstrates how the gospel can change you and use the way God has wired you for more powerful things than you could possibly imagine. And one of the most powerful stories that we read that illustrates this is the story of a man named Saul of Tarsus. His story begins in Acts. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, sound like a trigger-happy commander to you? went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That's who this man was at first. He was the consummate commander. He was rigid, confrontational, dictatorial, hostile, threatening, and shameless about it all. He admits as much in Philippians chapter 3 when he's looking back on this moment in his life. Yeah, I was proud of being a Hebrew of Hebrews, proud of being of the tribe of Benjamin, proud of being a Pharisee according to the law, proud of the fact that I was a persecutor of the church. I had no shame in any of that that I did. And yet, God changed this man. And we can thank God that he changed this man. See, some people think power is an evil thing in and of itself. And it's because they've never met someone who wielded power in a way that honors the Lord. Every powerful person like this they've ever met is someone who is self-centered and unaware and always used their power to their own advantage. Power is not an evil thing. And one of the ways we know that is because in Paul's conversion, Jesus didn't take that way that he was wired away. He didn't take that commanding disposition away. But you know what he did? He redeemed it on the Damascus Road, and he made Paul more powerful than Paul had ever been before. The result of this is that Saul of Tarsus, the terrorist who persecuted and killed anybody who got in his way, becomes Paul the apostle who will refuse to allow language, culture, geography, opposition, or anything else to stand in the way of the spread of the gospel. We just saw what a flesh-filled commander looks like, didn't we? Breathing threats and murder, persecuting the church. This is what a redeemed commander looks like. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. That's power used for the right purpose. That's what we see in the life of Paul the Apostle. Something very strange happened with the way that Paul used his power. Now that he's a Christian, he is now considered an enemy by many of his Jewish brothers. Second Corinthians 11, he says, I was beaten with rods and flogged. I've been stoned. I've been shipwrecked. But this is now a new kind of individual with a new nature 
a nature that understands I don't have to be against everything. Even when I'm persecuted, I don't have to always fight back, punch back, shoot back. Every problem is not a nail. I don't have to constantly be the hammer. This is what the mercy of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It it leads you beyond being against. It leads you beyond revenge. And it redirects your strength toward compassion and kindness. And for some of you who are looking at these biographies and you're going, yeah, that's that's me, I see that. This will be your greatest challenge is to be self-aware to the extent that you're not against people who are against you. Some of you are against your spouse or against your kids or against your brothers and sisters in Christ or against your coworkers because you subconsciously think that that being against is necessary for you to keep your strength. Listen to the words of Paul about those who persecuted him and wanted him dead. This is from Romans chapter 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. If it were possible for me to take their curse so that they wouldn't have to bear it, because I've recognized now that I am redeemed, they are not the enemy that I should be against. They are the little guy. They are the one that is vulnerable to the wrath of God. That's a redeemed individual that can find a way forward. But, but here's the things you got to do. If this is who you are, if this is the way you're wired, there's three ways that you need to push forward and to repent of some of those fleshly ways of working out the way God has wired you. The first thing you need to do is, is you need to learn to embrace hurt. Now, that doesn't mean you're, you become a doormat that you allow somebody else to abuse you to the point of a mental breakdown. I'm just saying, for, for some of you, it's just you got to be like a tank all the time. And you have to learn to embrace hurt. You know why? Because you're going to get hurt. Amen? You just are. It's part of life. We're surrounded by people who are fallen. We're fallen. We live in a fallen world. And occasionally, people are going to hurt us. They may not even mean to do it. In fact, our first response really should be to assume the best and think maybe they don't intend to do it, even though we recognize that they have done it. You're not immune to hurt. That's one of the consummate temptations of someone whom God has wired in this way is to think, I can't be hurt. I'm not going to be hurt. I'm not going to reveal that I've been hurt. That's not good for you. It's not good for your soul. That's not good for the people that are around you. The second thing you need to learn to do is relinquish your fear of being controlled. Now, if God's wired you this way, if I'm reading these texts and these biographies and you're seeing yourself in the mirror of the stories of Deborah and Jael and Joab, that one scared you. Because if you're like me, we don't like to just do a lot of good work and get things done. We, we like to be the one in the driver's seat. Ask my wife. She never drives anywhere. And I just had a wreck two weeks ago and completely demolished her van. So she's obviously a better driver than me. So why am I the one behind the wheel? Because huh? I want to be behind the wheel. I want to be that person. That's, that's part of what we see here. Relinquish your desire 
for constant control. Because let me tell you something about control. It's an illusion. You don't have it anyway. Okay? You can't straighten everybody else out. You can't make stuff happen. There are things you can do to set the right environment, to be sure. You can command. You can talk about the black and white. You can remind us that we are, in fact, in spiritual war. But you can't control everybody's reactions. You can't. You just can't do it. Here's the third thing you need to do. You need to learn to refuse to live defensively. Your self-reliance will, if you're not careful, enslave you to that mentality. And, and if you can learn to not live in defense like somebody's always coming against you, what will emerge from that is a non-reactive kind of strength that's more powerful than anything you've probably experienced in your life. But here's what you're going to have to do to get there. Can I warn you in advance? You're not going to like this Bible verse. You know why I know that? Because I don't like this Bible verse. Can I admit that to you? Is it okay for your pastor to admit to you there's some Bible verses that tick me off? There's some Bible verses that make me very uncomfortable. There's some Bible verses that I don't like. Do I believe they are God's word? Yes. Do I believe I have a responsibility to bring myself into submission to them? Yes. Do I like them? No. I don't. And this is one of them. Take a look at Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, so that God can remind me with the power and the ability to command that he has given me that I'm really not all that in a bag of chips. To remind me of that, a thorn was given me in the flesh. You know how much ink has been spilled by biblical scholars trying to figure out what that thorn was? You want to know? You ready? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Because whatever it was, it achieved its purpose. And its purpose was this, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. God allowed Satan himself to bring torment into my life so that I wouldn't become conceited. And three times he says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. You know what that is? No, not going to do it. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in... You see why I hate this verse? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. See, Paul's somewhere that I, I'm not yet. I haven't been there. There's there been times in my life, been the, under the power of the Holy Spirit and only under the power of the Holy Spirit, where I have been there and done that, and I thank God for it. Paul is obviously at a place where this is like permanent in his life now. I boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, okay, when I don't have control of the situation, when things aren't going the way I think they should go, when I start beating myself up because I think it's my fault, because I didn't push hard enough, yell hard enough, I wasn't against people enough, when I give all that up, what I find is a power 
that cannot be measured. Can't be measured. If I could just, if I could just give it up, then I, a power that allows me to face weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, and sleep at night and be content. That's what's available to me. That's what's available to you. A power that is immeasurable because it comes from Jesus. It comes from Jesus. I told you, I'd hate it. But it is so powerful. To those who despise weakness, God tells us through the Apostle Paul, that's the only path to genuine power. And he loves you and loves me enough to make us weak. I got food poisoning. Four o'clock Thanksgiving morning. It was a wonderful day. Um, we, we took all of Thanksgiving week. We'd actually never done that before. We said, let's go away. The gift of a dear friend to stay a couple of hours from here. And we went down into, the, into town from where the, the room was that we were staying at, and we, we shopped and had a good time as a family, and then we ate, and I chose at a buffet some pork. This probably wasn't the smartest thing I've ever done. So I woke up the next morning, and it just wasn't good. And people have asked me about it like that. Man, that must have really stunk to be in bed on Thanksgiving Day. While my family, who were supposed to be visiting a ministry family, they're dear friends of ours about 45 minutes down the road, but instead of eating turkey and ham that day, they had Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving. And I told my wife, I said, just go, I'm fine, I'm not going to die. I mean, no, I'm not leaving you here, you're weak. And I'm like, no, please go, I hate for you guys to miss that out, miss out on that. So it really was Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving. They had popcorn and toast and tater tots and as my wife said to some of you ladies Sunday night, there's nothing like staring at a can of SpaghettiOs going, how do I make this for Thanksgiving? That was my family. That's not the first time that's ever happened to me. And, and I'll tell you, some of the things, I, this doesn't have to be true for you. This is just, I know in my own life, I am oftentimes so driven that if the Lord really wants to say something profound to me, he's got to do something like that to me. Like, that's... It's like I just keep going and going and going, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not telling you anything except just confessing to you there's some spiritual weakness on your pastor's part here. I get, I get myopic. I get the blinders on. I know where I'm going, and I just push, and I push, and I push, and I push. And if I get unaware of that, and God's trying to speak, and he's trying to redirect, or he's trying to do something else, and so he just, he's just like, you know, and then it's over. And I'm down for the count. Thank, thankfully, he's never hit me with anything chronic or terminal. He, he, apparently, he's still got some work for me to do. But that's what he does. And, and the most powerful things I've ever experienced in my walk with Jesus, for me, are because it's been those moments when I've just been on my back and I couldn't even roll over without something hurting those are the times when he speaks most powerfully to me. And more than anything else, the messages have always been a little bit different. They've always been aimed at different things. But over it all, it's what Paul says here. My power is made perfect 
in weakness. And doesn't it make sense? We serve a Savior who's enormous, indescribable, immeasurable power to save sinners came through the humiliation and the nakedness and the weakness that he experienced at the cross. And a servant is not greater than his master. The greatest temptation, if you're one of these people, of people like us, is to think that the power we can exude from ourselves is better than that. And I've been married 25 years next July. So when I start acting that way, Amy's been married to me long enough now, she just rolls her eyes. You thump your chest, talk about all the stuff you're going to do and the things you're going to get accomplished and everything that's wrong and how you're going to make it right. And the whole time, the Lord's just saying, take that outer shell off. Stop trying to cover yourself and expose who you are, including the sweat stains. I'm sorry. My power is made perfect right here. Right here. That'll make a difference in your life, in your disposition, in the way you sleep at night, in your family, in your spouse, in your children, in your workplace. Nobody will ever feel threatened by you again. Unless, of course, they're walking in the flesh and they wrongly perceive you. That does happen sometimes. They will see you for who God created you to be. A fortress for the weak, powerful leader among God's people, but one who recognizes, I, I don't do this in my own strength. I don't do this by sheer force of my own personality. I am vulnerable before God and everyone else. And it is at that moment and only in that moment when I am strong. Would you pray with me? Lord, as weird as it sounds, thank you for all of those times, including two weeks ago, when you make me so sick that I can't even get out of bed. Because you love me enough to grab my attention. Father, I, I don't know who's here in front of me. I don't know who needs to hear this today. But I, I say what I say once again, knowing that when I am weak, you are strong. When I don't know, you do. When I sense that something may or may not be happening, you have already worked in the hearts and the lives of these people. Your word will not return void. And I just pray now, in the name of Jesus, that you would allow all of us here to admit our vulnerability to each other, to take off the shell to be willing to expose ourselves to hurts and heartaches, to be willing to no longer put up defenses with each other, and to simply move forward as one 
in that moment that everyone else thought was weak, but was what turned out to be the most powerful redeeming moment in all of human history. When you hung on the cross and you simply said, it is finished. May we rest in that power. May we walk in that power. May the people around us sense that power. And may you be mightily glorified in it all. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.